Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Internist's Guide 2, a limited series dedicated to high-yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Jamil Abdul-Raymond from Hematology on antithrombotic therapy for VTE disease, second update of the CHESS guideline and expert panel report released in 2021. We also discuss the ASH 2018 guidelines for management of venous thromboembolism, optimal management of anticoagulation therapy, and make reference to the Thrombosis Canada guidelines. I'm joined today by Dr. Jamil Abdul-Rahman, who is a hematologist with specialization in thrombosis and hemostasis at the University Health Network and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Before we go to our first content-based question, I just want to ask if you can tell us a little bit about how VTE management relates to your practice. So I specialize in thrombosis and hemostasis. So I would say the vast majority of my practice is related to VTE management. Great. So our first question for you is, when can we use direct oral anticoagulants for anticoagulation for venous thromboembolism? In what cases might you choose one of the DOACs over another? Right. So DOACs have largely replaced vitamin K antagonists such as warfarin as standard of care in the treatment of VTE. They are safer in terms that there is lower risk of major bleeding, lower risk of fatal bleeding, lower risk of intracranial bleeding compared to BKAs. And they're also more convenient. They're given at fixed doses without need for routine monitoring. So all the guidelines now recommend DOAX as first line over VKA. There are still some situations in which you might want to consider VKA. So for example, if there's drug-drug interactions with DOAX, thrombotic antiphospholipid syndrome, a very poor renal function, and also we need to consider cost as well. So if you're paying out of pocket, if you have no coverage, on average, the DOAX is about 120 to 150 a month, whereas VKA is about $15 a month. So there is a significant cost difference. In terms of which DOAC to use, uh, so all the DOACs approved in Canada, Dibigatran, Rivaroxaban, Apixaban, Adoxaban, are all approved for treatment of VTE. We don't have any published head-to-head trials comparing the DOACs, so we don't know if one is better or safer than the other. There is a trial underway called COBRA, which is comparing Rivaroxaban to Apixaban, but that's not yet published. So right now, any of them can be used. On average, rivaroxaban and apixaban are most commonly used. I think the two big reasons for that is, firstly, in the treatment of VTE up front for dibigatran and edoxaban, you need to lead in with low molecular heparin or parenteral anticoagulation. Whereas with apixaban and rivaroxaban, we have a loading dose, but it's just a higher dose of the oral pill. So if you see a patient in eMERGE with VTE, it's a lot easier to send them home with pills rather than send them home with injection. The other thing with rivaroxaban and apixaban is they've been tested at a lower dose as secondary prevention. So that's in the Einstein Choice and Amplify Extend study, but this has not been tested into bigotran and edoxaban. So those are two big reasons why rivaroxaban and apixaban are much more common. In terms of apixaban versus rivaroxaban, really just small things. Rivaroxaban is more convenient because it's once a day rather than apixaban being twice a day. Apixaban is nice because of the DOACs, it's the least dependent on renal clearance. There's increasing observational data that apixaban might have a lower bleeding risk compared to rivaroxaban, but until the head-to-head trial comes out, we don't know for sure. So the CHESS 2021 guidelines came out recently, and I was catching up on them myself. 
And they talk a little bit about durations of treatment. So how long should VTE be treated for? And how might this differ if we think about provoked versus an unprovoked VTE? So for any VTE, the first three to six months is for treatment purposes. After that, we have to consider what is the risk of a new thrombosis if we stop anticoagulation versus what is the risk of a major bleed if we continue anticoagulation. And depending how that works out, we keep going or we stop. So for someone with a strong provoking risk factor, so let's say they break a hip, they have surgery, they're in hospital, they get a VTE, so strong risk factors. We know that if we treat them, we treat them for three months and then we stop. The risk of a new thrombosis in the upcoming year is about 1% or less. So in these people, not worthwhile continuing anticoagulation because we're more worried about them having a big bleed on anticoagulation than having a new thrombosis off anticoagulation. On the other extreme, we have males with unprovoked VTE. So we know males with unprovoked VTE are at high risk of recurrence, probably about 10% in the upcoming year after stopping anticoagulation. So for these guys, it's well worth continued on anticoagulation as secondary prevention. With women with unprovoked clots, their risk is lower compared to men. Some of them are as high as men, some of them are lower. So we can use different clinical risk scores to determine her risk of recurrence. Can we stop anticoagulation or should we keep going after that initial treatment period? So there's different clinical risk scores. Uh, many people are familiar with the HER2 score. Another score I like is a DOD score, DODS. The HER2 score is good. It's a Canadian study. The limitation of the HER2 study is that the authors did another study looking at the HER2 algorithm, and they found that if you use a different D-dimer assay compared to the one used in the study, it's not reliable. So in the study, they used the VITUS D-dimer assay. So if your center uses VITUS D-dimer assay, stick with HER2, it's a good score. If your center does not use the VITUS D-dimer assay, then it might not be your best choice. The DOD score is a good one. Essentially, it's looking at D-dimer. So at the end of treatment, so the three to six months, you check D-dimer. If D-dimer is negative, you can stop anticoagulation. You repeat D-dimer one month after being off anticoagulation. And if D-dimer remains negative, you keep them off anticoagulation. The risk of recurrence is low. With both these scores, these only work in women. These scores do not work in men. So far, no risk score really has been good at identifying men with unprovoked clots at low risk of recurrence. That's great. Thank you. In terms of if you are putting someone on extended anticoagulation, is it at a specific dose? And I know the CHESS guidelines spoke a little bit about aspirin as an option. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So after the treatment period, once we're going on extended anticoagulation, if this is a patient who are going to continue anticoagulation, we consider the lower dose DOAX, assuming they don't have any of the limitations we discussed before with the drug-drug interactions or whatever. So the rivaroxaban and apixaban can be used at half dose as secondary prevention. And in the studies, Einstein Choice, Amplify Extend, the half-dose DOACs were as good as the full-dose DOACs in preventing recurrent VTE. In the Einstein Choice study, it was RIVA-20 versus RIVA-10 versus aspirin. And there was no difference in bleeding risk between the RIVA-10 and the aspirin. And not surprisingly, RIVA-10 was better than aspirin at preventing recurrent VTE. So I wouldn't use aspirin as secondary prevention for most patients. The only time I might consider it is if it's a cost issue. If they cannot be on anticoagulation, then aspirin is reasonable. We do know aspirin is better than placebo at preventing recurrent VTE in the Warfasa study, but it's not nearly as good as low-dose DOAC. So I would either do the Rivotan or the PIX 2.5 PID. So some patients, and you might not want to do it, is in cancer patients, I would not do that. It hasn't been studied there's a study going on right now called APICAT, which is looking, can we use low-dose DOAC and secondary print for cancer? But we don't know yet, so I would not do it there. And also in the setting of antiphospholipid syndrome would not dose reduce.
That's a perfect lead in for our next question on the anticoagulation in the setting of thrombosis and cancer. And if you could speak a little bit to some of the evidence for the agents that we're going to use in that setting. Yeah. So traditionally, low molecular heparin was our anticoagulant of choice in cancer-associated thrombosis. There was the clot and the CATCH studies, and those compared low molecular heparin to warfarin in cancer clots. And we found that there was a lower risk of recurrence with low molecular heparin compared to warfarin. Then more recently, the DOAX came out, which, as we know, much more convenient. So studies looked at, can we use DOAX instead of low molecular heparin? So these are RCT trials. So there was Hockey-Sivte looking at edoxaban, Select-D looking at rivaroxaban, Caravaggio looking at apixaban. There are no studies looking at dibigatran in cancer clots, so I would not use that. In short, the DOAX seems to be as good, maybe even better, at preventing recurrent VTE compared to low molecular heparin, the trade-off being an increased risk of bleeding. So there are some guidelines, Canadian guidelines, published recently. Uh, you can find them in current oncology. They recommend DOAX for most cancer clots, with the exception of high risk of bleeding, unresected intraluminal GI or GU cancer, if there's drug-drug interactions, or if there have been significant GI surgery or absorption disorders in which DOAC absorption may be questionable. In those areas, you'd want to use low molecular heparin over DOAC. And one follow-up question to that, when initiating patients um, on anticoagulation, would you still, would you do low molecular rate heparin and then the oral agent, or would you just do higher dose DOAC for the load and then regular dose? Yeah. So for most cancer clots, I would just treat as normal. If there's someone, for whatever reason, is very high risk of bleeding, but you still want to maybe get DOAC, a strong patient preference, then I would lead in with low molecular heparin and then see how things go. And then if no concerns, could switch over to DOAC. But for the most part, you can treat as normal with the Rivaroxaban 15-BID for three weeks, followed by the regular dose, or the Apix 10-BID for a week, followed by the the regular dose, the 5-BID. So thinking a little bit about superficial vein thromboses, the CHESS 2021 guidelines have a section on this. And I'm just curious about what situations we are anticoagulating for SVT and when might we use prophylactic dosing or when might we not treat? That's a great question. So in general, we are less concerned about superficial vein thrombosis compared to DVT. Superficial vein thrombosis are less likely to propagate, less likely to embolize to the lungs and less likely to recur. So we don't need to be as aggressive with anticoagulation as we do with the DVTs. So there's a spectrum in terms of how we would treat these. So on one end, we have the very high risk. So the very high risk superficial vein thrombosis are close to the deep system, so within three centimeters. These ones we would treat as if it was a DVT. In the middle ground, we have patients with the superficial vein thrombosis, so it's not too close to the deep system, but there's still high risk. High risk being above knee, it's at least five centimeters in length, and they have high risk features. So age over 65, male, previous VTE, cancer, autoimmune, non-vericose vein thrombosis. All these risk factors are from the SURPRISE trial, which looked at low-dose rivaroxaban as treatment, so that's where that comes from. So if you are in this category, you could treat with a low-dose DOAC. Rifaroxaban 10 was studied, but I'd be happy to use a Pixaban 2.5 BID for 45 days, and that should be sufficient. And then on the lowest risk, so far from the deep system, it's uh, less than 5 centimeters, below the knee, you could get away with warm compress and NSAID, just symptomatic treatment. And then to that point, just a question on sort of catheter-associated thromboses, would management of that change if there was a catheter-associated superficial vein thrombosis? Good question. 
So it'd be pure extrapolation. But yeah, I would treat a catheter-associated superficial vein thrombosis the same as a superficial vein thrombosis outside of catheter. I might be a bit more aggressive just because I have that persistent risk factor. But if I were to treat, I would treat with the low-dose DOAC. I treat at least 45 days. If they still had the line in place and I was concerned they're higher risk, I might keep them going on that low-dose DOAC. But that's pure extrapolation. So a little separate from what we were just talking about, upper extremity DVT is its own sort of category. So I wanted to ask how management of that may differ. Yeah. So most of our data for upper extremity DVT is extrapolated from lower extremity DVT. In terms of anticoagulant, so for catheter-associated DVTs, there was a small single-arm prospective study using rivaroxabana's treatment. The study was catheter 2. It showed a higher-than-expected rate of bleeding and one fatal PE. The study had no control, so it's hard to make any conclusion from that. So overall, Canadian guidelines suggest to treat as lower-extremity DVT. If you have a catheter-associated thrombosis, the line does not need to be removed. Reasons for its removal if it does not work, if it's no longer needed, or if it's infected, but otherwise you can leave it in. Duration of treatment should be at least three months, or as long as the line remains in place, whichever is longer. If there is underlying cancer, it's a bit controversial. If the line is removed, but they still have underlying cancer, do you keep going or do you stop? Different people practice differently. A person myself, I will keep going, even if the line is removed, as long as the cancer is still there. That makes sense. And then just to clarify... In terms of guidelines on removal of the line, does that differ in the setting of DVT versus superficial vein thrombosis? Yeah. So some people are concerned that if you remove the line, you might break off the clot and it could embolize to the lung. So there is a small retrospective study, so not the best of evidence, but pretty good, which looked at early removal of the line and late, and there was no difference in embolization to the lung. So I would not be worried about taking out the line out of concern for embolization to the lung. And that stands sort of no matter what type of BTE someone has. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yes. So maybe we'll move on to distal venous thromboembolism, which the CHESS 2021 guidelines spoke a bit about. Um, Can you tell our listeners more about when we would treat a distal VT? Sure. So treatment of distal DVT is controversial. They're lower risk compared to proximal DVT, but higher risk compared to superficial vein thrombosis. There is likely a subpopulation of patients with distal DVT who do not need treatment. But there's also a population of patients with distal DVT who should be treated with anticoagulation. So if they are severe symptoms, high risk of progression, then overall should treat uh, with anticoagulation. If there are low risk, mild symptoms, you could get away with repeat ultrasounds. So weekly ultrasounds for two weeks to confirm no proximal extension. That's a bit more challenging because a patient has to come back for ultrasounds. So that can be a bit more of a challenge. There was a meta-analysis recently which did overall see anticoagulation is beneficial. So for most of these patients, I will anticoagulate. But if there is someone who is high risk of bleeding, they're reliable and that they're going to come back for ultrasounds, they're low risk for progression, then you might not need to treat. Right. And those risks of progression are, as you say, like proximity to the SFJ? Or- yeah. If it is unprovoked, if it is, they have a high D-dimer, if they're very symptomatic, if they have previous VTE if they're immobile, all good reasons. In cancer distal DVT, I would definitely treat. The risk of recurrence after a cancer-associated distal DVT seems to be as high as proximal DVT. So with cancer distal DVT, I would treat. 
One other important section in the CHESS 2021 guidelines was management of subsegmental pulmonary embolism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So subsegmental PEs are also controversial. They're so small and they're such far at the periphery that we don't know if they're clinically relevant. For example, if you scanned 100 people just walking along the street, would you find people with subsegmental PE? We don't know. So the initial thought was maybe these don't need to be treated. Uh, maybe they're not clinically relevant. So the CHESS 2021 guidelines suggest clinical surveillance rather than anticoagulation. That being said, there was a recent study which came out since the CHESS guideline called SSPE, which is subsegmental PE, and this demonstrated a higher than expected risk of recurrence in these patients. So there may be a subgroup of patients who are young, age under 65, with single subsegmental PE who might not need treatment, but overall it looks like the risk of recurrence is higher than expected. So essentially, first thing you would do is you would ultrasound for DVT. Because if they have a DVT, you have your answer, let's treat. Even if they're asymptomatic, ultrasound the legs, DVT, good, we're treat. If they are high risk, so for example, cancer, a lot of comorbidities, older age, multiple subsegmental PE would likely treat. But if they are this low risk, they're otherwise healthy, under 65, just a single subsegmental PE, no DVT on ultrasound, you might be able to get away without anticoagulation. a little bit to interventional therapy. So the CHESS 2021 guidelines provide some updates on catheter-directed therapy or thrombolytics for pulmonary embolism and for DVT. Can you tell our listeners some of the highlights on when we might use or pursue interventional therapies? Sure. So just in terms of terminology, we have systemic thrombolysis. That's where we inject thrombolytic agent into the vein and it goes everywhere. And then we have catheter-directed thrombolysis. So that's where uh, we inject locally at the site of the thrombosis. So for pulmonary embolisms, for a massive PE, so defined as systolic blood pressure under 90, and assuming they're not a high bleeding risk, that's when we want to use systemic thrombolysis. If someone has right-sided heart failure, but BP is maintained, I would not thrombolyze. In the PITHO study, they looked at these patients, right-sided heart failure, but BP was maintained, and it's not worth the thrombolysis. You just get an increased risk of intracranial bleed. For catheter-directed thrombolysis for PE, if the patient has hypotension, but they're a high bleeding risk, or they fail systemic thrombolysis, or they have shock, but they're likely going to decompensate further before systemic thrombolysis works, then in these patients, catheter-directed thrombolysis is an option. It's very center-limited. Some centers do it, some centers do not. For DVT, it's always going to be catheter-directed thrombolysis. If you're doing it, there's no systemic thrombolysis for DVT. So catheter-directed thrombolysis can be considered in the setting of vascular compromise with the limb-threatening DVT. It used to be done to decrease the risk of post-thrombotic syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's unclear if it prevents post-thrombotic syndrome. There's been a few studies, Attract and Cavent, which have looked at this, and also long-term follow-up. It might not prevent PTS, but it's a bit unclear. So if you have a young person with a large proximal DVT and low risk of bleeding, you could consider catheter-directed thrombolysis to decrease the risk of PTS, but it's kind of a bit of a gray area. And is there um, still that time window of, I remember 14 days? Is, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, still the same time window. Yeah. Is the drug of choice in pregnancy. DOACs are probably teratogenic. Warfarin is. There are some situations where you'd want to consider warfarin in patients with mechanical valves, but that's really outside the scope of this topic. For VTE purposes, low molecular heparin, drug of choice. Mm -hmm. No need for routine anti-10A monitoring. 
regarding when they're coming up to delivery time. So if they're on therapeutic dose low molecular heparin, you want to do a scheduled delivery so that anticoagulant can be held 24 hours prior to delivery, and that will allow epidural if needed. If they are very high risk, so let's say they had a recent VTE, then consider switching over to IV heparin, and then you would stop at four to six hours before delivery and repeat the PTT to make sure it's normalized before doing anything. If the patient is on prof-dose low molecular heparin, then you can just do spontaneous labor. You don't need to schedule delivery. For breastfeeding, your choices are unfractionated heparin, low molecular heparin, vitamin K antagonist, fondaparinox, danaparide, but again, no DOAX. In terms of duration of treatment, you want to treat for at least three months or for up to six weeks postpartum, whichever is longer. And um, one follow-up question, if somebody has had a previous VTE in pregnancy, does that change um, what you might do from a prophylactic standpoint in subsequent pregnancies? Yeah. So for someone with a estrogen-induced thrombosis, so including pregnancy, or they had a clot while on birth control pill or uh, hormone replacement therapy. So for these women, we would treat them with anticoagulation during pregnancy and for the six weeks postpartum. If they were continued on anticoagulation before pregnancy, I would continue them on the therapeutic dose. If anticoagulation was stopped, so let's say they had a uh, oral contraceptive-associated thrombosis, they were treated for three to six months, the contraceptive is stopped, anticoagulation is stopped, then I would just treat their pregnancy with prof-dose anticoagulation during the pregnancy and for the six weeks postpartum. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for giving us an overview of VTE management, the relevant guidelines and evidence behind them. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode on VTE guidelines from CHESS 2021, ASH 2018, and the Thrombosis Canada guidelines. Special thanks to Dr. Jamil Abdelrahman for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. This episode was recorded and produced by Shaliza Halani. The Internet's Guide to podcast series is produced by Catherine Luer and Shaliza Halani. Executive producers Allison Lai, Sarah Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vasanthamohan. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.